Amen. So you guys remember last week we, we covered a little bit of chapter four. You know, we're introduced to, to Abel and, uh, and to his sin of, of, of murdering his brother. I mean, uh, to Cain and, and to the sin of murdering his brother Abel. And we, we, we read as, uh, as the Lord gave his promise to Adam and Eve of the promised seed. That it was his promise seed that was going to deliver them of the curse that, that came upon the earth. And as they had their firstborn, Cain... You know, they thought that, that king was going to be the, the promised seed. So they thought, like, that's it. You know, the Lord's going to deliver us right now with our first son. And instead of him being the deliverer, he ended up being the murderer. You know, he killed his brother Abel. And uh, we saw that, that, the Lord, that the Lord put a mark on Cain, just showing, extending his grace, extending his mercy to Cain. You know, even though Cain was a murderer, the Lord, the Lord still protected him and the Lord sent him out. And now we're going to read about, about the family of Cain and, and just everything that, that, that Cain did from there. And we're also going to see the start or the beginning of a godless civilization through Cain. But we're also going to see there in chapter 4, uh, men begin to seek the Lord. And uh, we're going to follow the lineage of the promised seed. And, and we know that, that Satan's plan is to corrupt and to destroy the promised seed. And we see this all throughout the Bible. It's like... As we, especially as we through, as we read through Genesis, we're gonna see, you know, just Satan. I mean, uh, just trying to corrupt this seed, you know, trying to track down this, this promised seed. He doesn't know who it is, you know. He knows that that there's been a promised seed given, you know, and, and he knows that, that that God promised that this seed is gonna crush his head as he as he bruises his heel. But he doesn't know who it is. He's not omnipresent like the Lord. He's not. He doesn't know all things like God. So we see him kind of just scramble, you know, to 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 find the seed and to and to extinguish it and to crush it. And we're gonna, we're, obviously he was, he was unsuccessful in that because the promised seed ended up being the Lord Jesus Christ. And even there at the cross, Satan thought that, that, that he had done his work, that he had crushed the seed, and that, and that his plans had prevailed against God's. But little did they know that, that Jesus was going to resurrect on the third day and have victory over death, sin, and, and, and the earth. So entering now to uh, Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 16. We're going to read through uh, verses 16 through 24. And this says this. It says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begot Mehujel, and Mehujel begot Methushel, and Methushel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubel. He was the father of all those, of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal King, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal King was Naamah. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So as, as we begin here reading about the family of Cain, and, and, and even throughout the whole rest of chapter 5, we're going to get to this lineage. And we're going to see just pretty much a bunch of names after names after names. You know, and, and there's, there's a lot of lineages given in the Bible, you know, and our temptation is to kind of just read through the lineage because, you know, typically that's the boring part. You know, that's the, you know, insignificant name. It just names that most of them can't even pronounce or I can't even pronounce. You know, so we, we tend to just to just skip through these names. But we see that that, 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 that all scripture is inspired by God. As 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. 
And we know that the Holy Spirit inspired uh, the writer Moses, you know, to, to include this gene- genealogy here for a reason. And if the Holy Spirit deemed it uh, important enough to, to, to be included in the Word of God, then, then, then I believe it's for a reason. I believe that, that it's worth studying and, or at least even worth looking into and reading. So we're giving this, this, uh, this short genealogy, the short uh, family tree of Cain. And we see there in the beginning of verse 16 that, that, that God kept his word to Cain. You know, and he told them the verses before that he was going to protect them. He protected them from anyone who kills them by putting this mark on them. And what does Cain do? He goes out and it says that he builds a city. And, and we see the, the effects of godless, godlessness, you know, and, and, and its moral decay. As Cain goes out, he builds his own city. We hear about his descendants, you know, or some of his descendants. And we see that, that, that it's just a beginning of a moral decay there, there because of sin and, and, and because of this man Cain. So we see that, that Cain built a city. And it says that he built, he built a city and that he named it after his son, Enoch. So we see that right off the bat that, that this was a city, you know, that this was a city that was man-centered. It was, it was a man-centered city, not God-centered. I mean, it shows by, by him naming the city after his son. You know, instead of him naming it after God or naming it after, you know, what are the attributes of God or, or you know, the great city of God or God's greatness, something like that. You know, I, I, even instead of him giving it like as an offering to the Lord as, or as a commemoration to the Lord for, for what the Lord did, you know, and extending mercy to him, a murderer. What does he do? You know, he has a son. He built a city and he names the city after his son. You know, exalting his son, exalting man and ultimately exalting himself. You know, by putting his, his son's name, you know, on that city. So we see that Cain just, again, we see the beginning of moral decay through Cain. We see, again, this, that this was a man-centered city, you know, not a God-centered city. And then it, as he begins to give some names, then we get to the name of uh, Lamech. And it says that Lamech took for himself two wives. And we see that this is the first mention of polygamy here in the Bible. The first mention of, poly- of polygamy. And we see that as, as we read throughout the whole Bible, especially the Old Testament. We're going to see a lot of instances of God's people taking on more than one wife, multiple wives. In the case of King Solomon, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of wives. And I mean, I've been asked before, I mean, people have asked me, oh, well, does God permit you know, people to, 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 to have many wives? Does God permit poly- polygamy? Because we read about it here in the Bible, you know, and it's true, it, it is here in the Bible, but God nowhere in the Bible permitted it. We see that, that, that man having multiple wives was never God's original design. It was never God's original intent. But we see that, that, that man out of his own corruption, out of the corruption of his own heart, out of his own sinful, sinful heart, he began to take, on, to take on multiple wives. And so we see Lamech here, the first mention of, of somebody having more than one wife. So it's the first mention of polygamy here in the Bible. And again, the, the Bible, the book of Genesis, is the book of origins, the book of beginnings. It's again, the first, the first man and woman, the, the first sin, you know, first murder, first polygamist, you know, the first of a lot of things. So we see Lamech took for himself two wives, it says. And again, we're going to see this throughout the whole Bible, you know, but, but nowhere does God uh, condone this, you know. In fact, he opposes it. This wasn't his original plan. Remember a couple chapters before there in Genesis 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's singular, his wife. Not wives, his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And Jesus quoted this again in Matthew 19.5. And then Paul quoted it in Ephesians 5.31. And we see, why was this such an act of rebellion on, on Lamech's part? We think, well, what's the big deal? You know, he had another wife. You know, what's the big deal? Well, this was actually an, an act of rebellion against, against God's original plan. 
And why was it such an act of rebellion? Because in distorting God's original plan for marriage, you know, he, is, he is attacking the very relationship of Christ and the church. We see that in the Bible, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, us. That's us. We're the church. And the Bible refers to us as the bride of Christ. Then in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. So there in, in Revelation, as, we, as, as John is, is, is in heaven, is getting a vision of heaven now. You know, and he's going to get a vision of the new city of the new, of the new Jerusalem. You know, and it says that they get the vision of this, this marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, and, and the Bible refers to it as a marriage supper. And refers to, to Jesus the Lamb as the bridegroom and us the church as his wife. You know, as, as the bride of Christ. And it says there, there in Revelation, it says that, look, it says that, that to her, to us as a church, is to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In Ephesians 5.22 and 32, Paul, giving, giving instructions to married couples, he reveals to us that a marriage between a man and a woman is an image of Christ and the church. So we see that, that, that God's, God's intent for marriage for a husband and wife you know, is, is, is that this marriage is supposed to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. So we see why, why there's such a strong attack on marriages today, on biblical marriages. We see why there's such a strong attack on, on, a, on a marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. It's not just that, 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 the, that the world is progressing and, and people are being open-minded and, and love is love and anybody can love anybody. It's not just that. This is a, a, a demonic attack on, on God's image you know, of, of marriage, of, you know, of God's image, image of Christ and the church, you know, of, of Christ being, being, the, being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. So we see why there's such a strong attack on marriage today. Where now, you know, they, they want to distort God's original intent for marriage. Where it's no longer man and woman, but it's now a man and a man, a woman and a woman. A, you know, it's all pretty much anything you can fit in that space between. I was reading of, um, I guess there was like this, this festival and, and there, I think it's in Michoacan or some, somewhere in Mexico. Where, where, I guess they were going to knock down all kinds of trees. So women, they started marrying Trees, you know, and there was actual marriage ceremonies going on between women and trees in order to protect these trees, and these ladies were marrying these trees, and it was an official marriage. I'm thinking, like, man, this is so crazy, you know. But I mean, I got on the internet for a little bit. And I started just kind of looking up, you know, some of the modern stuff that's going on. And there's women marrying their dogs. There's women marrying, you know, I mean, objects. There's just so many just just corrupted things, you know, that are going on, you know, within the within this, the boundaries of marriage now. And we see again Satan's attack on biblical marriage. Why? Because it's, an, it's, a, it's a picture. It's supposed to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. We are the bride of Christ and Christ is our bridegroom. And so we see here now, now sin, you know, entering Lamech and Lamech, taking on more than one wife, taking on two wives. And this is a direct attack on, on God's, God's design for marriage. Then verse 23, it says, Lamech says, said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. And he goes on to say, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. 
So remember, this is the family of Cain. And, 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 and the family and the family of Cain, we're going to see again this, this beginning of moral decay. So he says, I have killed a man, a young man, for hurting me. And then he says, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. So pretty much he's saying, hey, I'm better than Cain. Pretty much he's saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm better than Cain. If, if, Cain, if Cain kills somebody, if Cain kills somebody, and if whoever kills Cain is punished seven times, then whoever kills me will be punished 77 times. Remember there in chapter 4, verse, verse 15, the Lord said to Cain, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So the Lord is saying, hey, if, if somebody kills Cain because of what he did, then, then you know, vengeance, vengeance is going to be taken on him seven times. And now Lamech is saying, hey, look, I, I killed a young man for hurting me. Now, we don't know what this young man did to Lamech, you know, but, but we see that, that Lamech is taking a, a boastful approach in this. You know, he's proud of it. He's saying, hey, look, I killed this young guy. Hey, he's going in boastful, proclaiming his, his sin to his wives. Hey, wives, listen to me. I killed this young man because he hurt me. Now, if Cain is going to be avenged seven times, then, then Lamech is going to be avenged 77 times. Again, we see just his, his pride in his sin. You know, he's just taking a boastful, unrepentant approach to his sin of murdering. Again, so we see, again, this, this moral decay. They're in the family of Cain. And after this, we're not going to hear anything more about the family of Cain. The reason being is because the Holy Spirit is, again, following the, the, the lineage of Christ. He's following, he's following the seed, the promised seed. So after this, we're not, we're not going to hear anything about the family of Cain. But verse 25 and 26 tells us, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. In verse 26 it says, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So we see that, that things are getting dark you know, in the, in, in the world, and, and their only hope is his promised seed. I mean, you look to Cain, and you look to his family, and you look to his, to his city, and it's just nothing but darkness. You know, polygamy now is in play. Murder is in, in, is in, is in play. And, and just nothing but darkness here. And this is the beginning stages of, 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 of the world yeah, as we know it. And it's nothing but darkness. And we see that the only hope in the world now is this promised seed. And I'm, I'm thinking about, about Adam and Eve. And, and, and maybe they, they wonder if, if this would ever happen. As they're just looking around them. And they see so much darkness. They see so much moral decay. They see so much you know, corruption. And I wonder if they're, if they're thinking like, man, is the seed ever going to come? Was it Abel and now, and now that's it, he's dead and there's no more hope? Is God still going to fulfill his promise? We know that Adam and Eve had many other children, but the Bible focuses on Seth because it's through his lineage that the promised seed is carried. And in, in this we see that God is sovereign even when things look dark. We see that God always reserves for himself a remnant in the world, even in the most wicked situations. Again, it was nothing but darkness right now all around. And we see that, 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 with that even in the midst of this darkness, it says that, that Adam had another son. And it goes on to say, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord as like a little ray of light in the midst of darkness. This little ray of light sparks up through Seth. And when Seth, again, when Seth was born, it says, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. I love it. I love it, you know, because it reminds me a lot of, of the days that we're living in. Where, man, sometimes it feels like Nothing but darkness around us. You turn on the news, darkness. You go to work, darkness. You hear people's conversations, darkness. 
It's like everywhere, everywhere you go with darkness. I've been off of social media since like 2017, you know, and I got back on it because of you know the the, the church Instagram page, and it's like man, I almost you know don't really like going on there because the news the feed thing comes up and it's like nothing but trash that comes up and darkness. I'm like man, I gotta just stay away from that stuff, you know. It's like it's like all we see around us is darkness, you know, and and boastful boastful you know sinfulness going around. But again, even even like in the times of of Adam, where it was nothing but darkness. Seth was born and says, Then man began to call on the name of the Lord. Second Chronicles 69 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And we see that that's still true. This the son was born to, to Adam and Eve, Seth. You know, and then man began men began to call on the name of the Lord again. And we see that that's what the Lord wants. You know, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth. Not just in Israel, not just then, not just, not just you know, back then, but now too. You know, that the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth. To show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal. And we see that the Lord is always desiring to do a work through those faithful few, through that faithful remnant. And we see that the Lord always has his faithful remnant everywhere. I mean, it, it may not seem like it, you know, but even... Like, just in, like in a small community like this, like City Terrace, we think like, oh man, like how many godly people can be in City Terrace? And we say that God has his remnant everywhere we go. God always has his little remnant. And, and God is desiring to work through that remnant. And we're going to see that God's going to work through Seth and through the lineage of Seth. Chapter 5. As we get into chapter 5, we're going to read about the genealogy of Adam following Seth. You know, now, a couple things to note that from Adam to Noah... Ten generations are listed. Again, it's easy to read past these, these lists of genealogies in the Bible. And, but, but again, they're here for a reason. One is to tell us that they were real people. You know, they weren't these fairy tale people. They weren't these made up, you know, people. They weren't these uh, children's book people that, that, you know, I know a lot of people think that. But they were real people. They were real living people. So one, these, gene- these genealogies are listed to, to let us know that hey, these were real people that actually lived and died. And again, another thing, as we read through these genealogies, we see that there was no gaps in these genealogies like some may suggest. Because you know, people try to date the earth like millions of years and they say, oh, well, you know, Adam, you know, it was a million years till he had his next son. And then, you know, they were another million years and, and they try to, you know, put these huge gaps in between these, these genealogies. And, and by putting these, these huge gaps, you know, they, they, they try to support their, their, their theories like evolution you know, and, and they try to support their theories um, and, their, and their, their attacks against the Bible by saying, no, well, you know, from, the, from Adam to this person, from this person to this person was thousands or millions of years. And, and within that time, you know, the, 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 really, the, the real meaning of the Bible was lost and all kinds of crazy things that, that, that people, you know, uh, used to come up against the Bible. But it's awesome to note that as we read through the genealogy of Adam, we see that there was no gaps in the, in the genealogies. You know, the writer here of the genealogy tells us, you know, hey, Adam was this much, this was this old when he when he bore this son, and then he died at this age, and this one was this old when he, when he bore this son, and he died at this age. So again, it's it's awesome because it, it closes it closes those those, those theories of, of of gaps in these genealogies. So it, it leaves no room for speculation. You know, the list given here is very specific as to what age these men were born and died. And this genealogy from Adam to Noah is, is actually mentioned again in First Chronicles chapter one. 
Like the first eight chapters of, of First Chronicles are nothing but genealogies. You know, and this, this very genealogy is mentioned again in First Chronicles chapter 1. And then Matthew later on, as, as he's writing his gospel, he starts his genealogy starting from, from Abraham down to Christ. So again, the Bible of the Holy Spirit is, is telling us these are real people. These are, these are actual you know, characters in the Bible. These were, these were real men and women of, of the Bible. And, and, and therefore, the, the Bible could be trusted. Therefore, the, the, the seed, you know, the promised seed could be traced down all the way to God's promise. Amen. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through just through the whole chapter as we read through these genealogies. And bear with me. It says, This is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So we see that, that, that Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters. I mean, it says there, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. I mean, how many kids can you have in... 930 years, you know, a lot. And those kids are having other kids. Again, the, the Bible's only going to mention certain names but because it's only focusing in on, on, this, on, the, on the carried seed, on the promised seed. But we see that Adam and Eve had many other kids. I mean, a few verses before there in chapter 4, it says that, that Cain, you know, knew his, knew his wife and they had kids. Well, who was his wife? Probably one of his sisters. That's the truth. It was probably one of his sisters. It was most likely one of his sisters. You know, so we see again that, that, that Adam and Eve, you know, they had many other kids. And, and, and the purpose of, of them you know, marrying close, close family members was to populate the earth. But we see that later on, that there, as, as the Lord is speaking through Moses, he tells them, all right, you know, that's, that was for a season. But, but all that's over now. You know, now you're not to marry you know, someone who's close of kin. So again, it says that all the days of Adam were 930 years and he died. So he had a lot of kids during those 900 years. And those kids, had, those kids had a lot of kids, so the earth would have been extremely populated by this time. Then verse 6, it says, Seth lived 105 years and begot, and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 870 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalel. After he begot Mahalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us 
concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So the, the name Noah actually means comfort. In verse 30, after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old when, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Oh. So a lot to take in, a lot of numbers, a lot of people dying. And as we read through his, through his genealogies, you know, one thing sticks out. He lived so and so, so many years and died. And, and I mean, this is, this is new, you know, because again, before, before the fall, there was no death. Now we're seeing the, the effects of sin entering into the world where now the, 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 the warning that God gave them, hey, if you eat of this, uh, this fruit, uh, the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Remember that the serpent came in and deceived Eve and told her, hey, you will not surely die. And you guys remember we talked, we said, we mentioned that, that, that when Satan comes in with his lies, you know, it's always, it's always, you know, lies with a little bit of truth in it or truth with a little bit of lies in it and, and, and neither way to lie. He's never going to tell you the whole. He's never going to tell you the whole lie. He's always going to, going to throw in a little bit of truth in it and twist it up and make you and, and make you fall for it, right? Because yeah. when, when, he, when he gives you a lie with a little bit of truth, we tend to always look at the little bit of truth and disregard the lie, and we say, "Oh, well, that sounds true. I know part of that's true, so the rest of it must be true." Or it causes us to kind of trust in the lie, and then bam, that's when we fall for the for the sin. That's when we fall for the temptation. That's when we fall for the hook, and he's got us, and he reels us in. So we see now that that, that these people are experiencing the effects of sin. In their lives, the effects of, of, of the fall of man. So this thing stands out. It says that they lived so many years and they died. And so reading through all these names, a couple of names stand out here. One of them is, is the name of Enoch. There in, there in verses 18, 18 through 24. Now the New Testament has a couple of things to say about Enoch. There in Hebrews chapter 11, which is a chapter of faith, the, the, the hall of faith, the hall of fame, the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, it says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we see that again, that the, that the best commentary for the Old Testament is the New Testament. And the best commentary for the New Testament is the Old Testament. And we see that the New Testament shed some light on this, on this character Enoch. You know, and this is all we know about Enoch is, this, is these few verses that, that says that, that Enoch, that, he, that Enoch, uh, um, what does it say? That Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. And it says, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God's sake. So that's all the Bible tells us in the Old Testament about Enoch. But the New Testament shed some light on his life. And, and shed some light on, on, on the relationship that Enoch had with God. And it tells us that Enoch was a man of faith. A man whose faith pleased God. And keep in mind that he was a man of faith in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Keep in mind, you know, that there's all this darkness, all this wickedness, all this, all this sin, you know, here, in this, in this, it, here at this time. But yet, there was Enoch. You know, a man who pleased God. A man whose faith pleased God. So see that, that it's possible to, to live a life that pleases God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And that's what God has called us to, to, to be, you know, a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's what, called us, that's what God has called us to do is to live a life of faith in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And I think, man, this was thousands and thousands of years ago. And we're reading about Enoch's faith right now, tonight. 
And, and his faith and his relationship with God has, has made him stand out throughout the whole Bible. You know, and, and, and has made him someone who, who, we look, who we look back towards. You know, and, and admire him for his faith. So again, so Hebrews tells us that he was a man of faith and a man whose faith pleased God. So he was a man of faith, pleasing faith. And a man of faith in a, you know, the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, calls him a prophet. They're in the book of Jude, which is a, a little book. I think it's like two pages. It's a book right before Revelation. Now, the author, Jude, is the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James. You know, and, and now Jude, he, he, while, while Christ was, was in his earthly ministry, he didn't believe that, 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 that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, actually, there in John chapter 7, you know, Jude and, and James, they, they start mocking him. They're saying, hey, if, if you're the Messiah, then, then show yourself you know, to everyone here at the, at, the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus said, hey, my time has not yet come. We see that after he, he resurrected, his half-brothers uh, came, to, came into, into a saving faith in, in Jesus Christ. And Jude, and Jude ends up writing a small epistle. And then the book of Jude, he calls Enoch a prophet. And Jude, verse 14 and 15, it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, so we know he's talking about this guy. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on, it, on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we see that, 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 that Jude calls Enoch a prophet. And you know, they must have had a other, other information. You know, we know that there's, that there's other books you know, that are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, but, are, but are very good for historical, you know, or for historical, um, historical facts. And, and they must have had their information from one of those books. And Jude calls Enoch a prophet. And, and, and he, he mentions one of Enoch's prophecy, prophecy. And in this prophecy of Enoch, if you guys notice, the word that stands out a lot is ungodly. So it says that Enoch prophesied during his time. And it says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly. Among them all who are, um, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So you see that, that Enoch, Enoch's faith pleased God you know, because he stood out in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He went out there and he prophesied you know, the, in the name of the Lord and he called people to repentance. He called them out for their sin. He called out the ungodly. Again, in, in the midst of just his darkness, his sinfulness, his wickedness, we see Enoch there as just a beacon of light calling people out for their ungodliness. That's heavy. That's heavy. And then it's... So we know that, that Enoch was one of two men in the Old Testament who never died. The other being Elijah, as Elijah was carried away in, in, uh, in a flaming chariot. So it tells us right here in verse 23 of, of, of Genesis chapter 5. It says, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. So Enoch walked with God. That's all it says. Enoch walked with God. Four words. But in those four words, we see the ministry of Enoch, that he was prophesying to the people of his time, calling them to repentance, calling, calling them out for their ungodly deeds, calling them out for their ungodly actions, glorifying the name of God. Again, this beacon of light in the midst of, of darkness. And it's awesome that it says that, it says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now this is also a picture of, of the rapture here in the Old Testament. You know, and, and a, a picture of, of the church for us, you know, as we're, as we're living in the church age, 
you know, and, and the Bible talks about a rapture of the church there in, there in Second Thessalonians as Paul's writing to, to the church at Thessalonica. And, and, the, and the Bible tells us about a, a rapture of the church. Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, I don't believe in the rapture because there's a lot of Christians, good, honest Christians who don't believe in the rapture. And they'll say, I don't believe in the rapture because the word rapture is not in the church and it's not in the Bible. But we see that, that there in Second Thessalonians, as, as Paul is writing to the church there at Thessalonica, and, he, and he's exhorting the saints about, about these, these coming things, he, he uses the word uh, taken up, caught up. He uses the word caught up. Now, the, the, the Latin word for this word caught up is harpazo, you know, which, which is, I mean, it's rapturos. And the Greek word for this Latin word rapturos is harpazo, and which, is the, which is the word that, that Paul uses there. So that's where we get our word rapture from. So even though you're not going to see rapture, rapture is an, is an English translation of the, of, the, of the Latin, which is a translation of the Greek word harpazo, which is a word that, that Paul uses. And we see here that Cain is, is a picture of the rapture of the church. As it says that, that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And God spared him of, of, the, of the flood, of the worldwide flood. And God spared him of, of all the wickedness. And God spared him of the judgment that was going to come upon the earth. It says that his faith pleased God, and he was not. So God just took him. There's a quote about Enoch that I heard. I think, I don't know, I can't remember who I heard it from. And, but it was really cool. You know, talking about this verse that says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And we just, again, we, we could just... Uh, just think about the, the, the walk that Enoch, got with the, that Enoch had with the Lord. You know, and you can just imagine Enoch just walking with the Lord, man, just walking with the Lord. And, and every day just getting up in the morning and walking with the Lord and just walking in His will. And one day just walking with the Lord and just, and just Enoch walking with God. And, and you could imagine them just walking so far that the Lord just said to Enoch, Hey, it's getting late. Uh, do you want to go home or do you want to just come with me? And Enoch said, I'll go with you. And he was gone. I just want to say that, you know, that was pretty interesting because it's, it's an awesome picture of, of, of just a, an intimate fellowship, an intimate relationship that Enoch had with the Lord. That one day he would just walk with the Lord so far that God said, hey, you want to go home or you want to just go with me? I'll just go with you, Lord. And he just walked with them all the way to eternity. <laughs> Again, Enoch walked with God. He was not for God took him. And that's, that's the hope that, that we have as well as, as believers, as Christians, you know, that, that as we're walking with the Lord, I mean, God's going to take us one day. You know, He's going to spare us of, of the wrath to come, whether it's through the rapture or whether it's through death. But we know that we're going to be with the Lord. As Paul says there in the New Testament, he says, I'm torn between the two because I know that to be with Christ is better. He says, but for your sakes, I'd rather be here so I could continue to, to teach you guys, so I could continue to exhort you guys, so I could continue to pour into you guys. But he says, but I know that, that, to, be, that, that to be with Christ is better. And that's the promise that we have as believers. Uh, as we're walking with the Lord, we're going we're gonna to be with God forever. Again, whether He comes for the church, which I believe that we're living in a generation that's not going to see death. I truly, with all my heart, believe that, that the rapture of the church is close. And I truly believe with all my heart that, that, it's, that it's coming in, in our lifetime. I believe that, 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 we're, that we're the generation who's not going to see death. We're going to be the generation of Enoch and Elijah's. We're going to just be taken up with the Lord. I definitely believe with all my heart. Us as Calvary Chapel and, you know, and, and my personal belief as well, you know, we believe in the, in the imminent return of the, of the Lord, meaning that the rapture of the church can happen at any moment. There's nothing prophetically that needs to happen in order for the rapture to happen. The, hap the, the rapture is, a, is, is an imminent thing. It's, an, it's a spontaneous thing. There's nothing prophetically that needs to happen in order to, to, to lead up to this. 
you know, the Bible talks about prophecies concerning concerning uh, uh, the the, the seven-year tribulation period, concerning you know the, the the tribulation period, concerning the second coming of Christ. But there's no prophecies concerning the, the rapture, and we see that, that a lot of things are are in play right now for for certain things that need to happen in the seven-year tribulation period. And we know that the rapture of the church is going to happen before the seven-year tribulation period, because as the Bible says. There, there in Second Thessalonians that we're not appointed to wrath. So we see that the Lord is going to take up the church right before the seven-year tribulation period. So it's like, you know, if, if it's like if you're standing right here at the bus stop, you know, and, and you know, all right, it's almost time for the bus to come. You know, even though you don't see it, you know, it's like you see it off in the distance. You, you, see, you see the bus like, and it looks like this tiny because it's so far away, but you know it's coming. So, you, so you're not going to leave your post because you know it, it might take a while, but it's going to come. That's what's going on right now. Is that, is that we know that the rapture of the church is going to come because we see everything else around, around us. You know, we see the, the, the scenario being lined up right now for, for the seven-year tribulation period. And we know that the rapture is right before the seven-year tribulation period. So we know that the rapture of the church is, is coming quick. And that's even more of an encouragement to, to continue to press on, to continue to persevere, to, to, to not give up, to continue to just walk with the Lord. So again, we see that, that Enoch was the beacon of light in the midst of of darkness. Now, another thing that you know it's, I found really interesting to know as we're going through this genealogy, again, we're just reading through all kinds of names, and you know, this guy begot this guy, and then he died at this age, and then that guy begot that guy, and he died at this age, and then so on and so forth. Again, it's easy to just read through this genealogy and just kind of kind of brush it off as just a list of names that have nothing to do with us. But as we're reading through, through this genealogy, you know, I ask myself, can the creation account be trusted? I mean, we, we have this, this account of creation, which is obviously something very, very important. You know, and we know that, that, that Moses wrote, wrote, the, wrote the book of Genesis. And we think, well, where do you get this account? And can it be trusted? I mean, if it's been passed down from generation to generation and, and it's been so far from, 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 from him receiving, you know, receiving the, the, the account of creation, we think, can it be trusted? Can the account of creation be trusted? We think like, man, if it's if it's it's been so many genial, so many generations since since Adam and Eve, since 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 the garden, you know. So can can this be trusted? Can this account that we have here, Genesis one and two, be trusted? Is it possible that somewhere along the line, the story got lost or twisted? You know, I was able to do my math here, and, and, and it's, I didn't do anything special. It's something that, that, that you guys could do as well. But as you read through the genealogies there, starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it tells us that, the Adam, that Adam was 130 years old when he begot Seth. And that Seth was 105 years old when he begot Enosh. So when, Seth begot, so when Enosh was born, that means that Adam would have been 235 years old. Then it says that, that Enosh was 90 years old when he begot Canaan. So when, when Canaan was born... Adam was 395 years old. Then it tells us that, that, that Canaan was, was 70 years old when he begot Mahalel. And Mahalel, so that means that Adam would have been 395 years old when Mahalel was born. Then it tells us that, that Mahalel was 65 years old when he begot Jared. So that means when Jared was born, Adam was 460 years old. Then it tells us that Jared was 162 years old when he begot Enoch. That means that Adam was 622 years old when Enoch was born. And then it tells us that Enoch was 65 years old when he begot Methuselah. So that means that Adam was 687 years old when Methuselah was born. 
And then it tells us that, that Methuselah was 187 years old when he begot Malek, Lamech. That means that Adam would have been 874 years old when Lamech was born. And then, so what does that tell us? It tells us that, 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 that Adam was alive when all these guys were alive. And it says that the, the, the Lamech was, was Noah's dad. And now imagine, you can imagine Lamech, you know, you can imagine these guys, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, going over there to see Grandpa Adam and, and speaking to him directly and saying, Grandpa Adam, tell us about, about what it was like in the garden. Grandpa Adam, tell us what it was like walking in, in, the, in, the, in the cool of the day with God. Grandpa Adam, tell us what it was like when, 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 when Grandma was born. <laughs> Grandpa Adam, tell us what it was like when the serpent came in. Grandpa Adam, tell us what it was like you know, when you were naming the animals. Grandpa Adam, tell, tell us what it was like when, when, when God killed the first animal to make a covering for you. Grandpa Adam, tell us what God said you know, concerning the seed. We see how all these guys had direct access to Adam. Now Lamech, which is, which is Noah's dad, you know, so, so if, if Adam was 874 years old, and the Bible tells us that he died at 930 years old, that means that, that Lamech would have had 56 years old, would, would have had a, a span of 56 years with Adam, picking his brain. Grandpa Adam, tell us about this, tell us about that, tell us about God, tell us about this, that, the other. And what's awesome about that is again that, that, that they, had, they had direct access to the source. <laughs> they, they could go to, to Adam directly and ask him about all these things, ask him about the, 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 the six days of creation. You know, ask him about, about, ask him about what it was like you know, to, to walk with God. Ask him about what it was like when the fall came. Ask him about specifically what did God say about the promised seed. They had direct access to Adam all the way up until Lamech. And Lamech would have had, again, 56 years with Adam, with Grandpa Adam. Now, the, the awesome thing is that, is that, again, Adam lived to meet Lamech. You know, and then it says that the, the Lamech had Noah. You know, and then Noah had, had his sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if Lamech had direct access to, to Adam, and then he had his son, and he had his grandchildren, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, then Lamech could have, could have told them directly, you know, about this creation account. Now, what gets even, even more awesome is that Shem, one of Noah's sons, Shem, he was... He was still alive for about 100 years old when Abraham was born. That's heavy. That's heavy. He would have been about 100 years old when Abraham was born. So it's like, they would, they would have had, man, again, this, this, this direct access, you know, to, to, to the creation account. So it wasn't lost. It wasn't lost, you know, in generation after generation after generation. I mean, Lamech would have, would have talked directly to Adam and, and Eve as well. You know, so it's like, it's like man, they would have... They would have had access to to the source directly, so there's no way that this creation account could have got lost. You know, I just think that's amazing, and God is just so sovereign in doing this because He didn't allow. You know, because we know that the Bible comes under under a lot of intense criticism, but if people would just read the Bible and they would and they would you know see everything that, that the Lord has provided, it's like He leaves no room for 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 speculation. There's no room for for speculation. Again, man, Shem Shem would have been still alive when Abraham was born. Abraham would have. We're been able to go to Shem, who heard directly from Lamech, who heard directly from Adam. It's like, how, how closer can you get? <laughs> Again, so 
I just think it's, it's awesome how, how the Lord ordained all this, you know. And going on there in, there in chapter 6, we're going to be from, from verses 1 through 8. So it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of, who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So you get to kind of like a weird passage. You know, I honestly, I was, I was dreading going through this passage because I'll be honest, you know, there's a lot of speculation around, around, these, around these few verses, you know, and, and around this, this, this verse that says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they, that they took them for wives also. So there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of, you know, different uh, uh, opinions about this. And I was like, oh man, there's like the only verse in, the only section in Genesis that I kind of don't like going through. <laughs> because I'll be honest, I'm, I'm still not 100% decided on, on what side I lean towards. But I'll, I'll give you guys pretty much the, the two basic, you know, interpretations of this verse. Because there isn't no clear interpretation of this. But I'll give you guys pretty much the, the two basic interpretations of, of these verses. So it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. So obviously, you know, you have all these generations, and you have just uh, 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 all kinds of people being born. Now, commentators of the Bible believe that, that, that the earth's population around this time uh, would have been a good number, like a good conservative number, a good, like, uh, you know, reasonable number would have been 2 billion, around 2 billion people. It was probably more than that, but, but a good conservative number would have been around 2 billion people. So there would have been around 2 billion people around this earth, on the earth at this time. And it says that, that men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So definitely, you know, there was a lot of people on the earth. And that kind of gives you, gives you an idea of how many people died at the flood. And then it says that the sons of God, verse 2, saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So there's two basic, you know, ideas. There's two basic teachings. There's two basic you know, interpretations revolving around these verses. One of them is that 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 when, that when the Bible says that the that the sons of God, when it's talking about the sons of God, you know, seeing the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful, and, and they took them as wives, and because then it goes on to say that that, that they that be, that they had children, and that giants were born all of a sudden. You know, so so one of the one of the teachings that revolves around this is that. Is that when it says the sons of God that was talking about the lineage of Seth, so the, the godly lineage, the sons of God, was, uh, and one of the basic one of the teachings is that that the sons of God was was the godly lineage mixing up with the daughters of men, meaning the, the daughters of the family of Cain, you know the, the the carnal the carnal women. So one of the teachings is that that this godly lineage got mixed up with the with this with this ungodly lineage of Cain, and that you know it just. Pretty much went all, got all bad after that. that. That the earth started getting more corrupt, and that you know there was this godly lineage, but it got corrupted because they started inter intermingling with the daughters of Cain, you know, with with his family members, you know, and then pretty much this godliness was just 
which is corrupted. That's one of the teachings. Now, it says right there that uh, that giants that giants were in the land after the Zambrus forces. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now, it seems to, the Bible seems to tell us that, that, that because of this inter, intermingling, that somehow giants were born. Um, now, these giants weren't like, you know, we think, we think about giants and we think like, oh, wow, like, like Jack and the Beanstalk type of things. That was just these, these tall men, you know, who were anywhere from like eight to, to, to nine feet tall. And I mean, we see some basketball players that are pretty tall, you know, so there's nothing, there's nothing weird about this, you know, but it seems to indicate that, that because of this intermingling, that these, that these huge guys were born. So the other teaching that revolves around this is that the sons of it was that when it says sons of God, it's actually talking about angels, you know, about fallen angels, about these demons who were cast out, you know, at the rebellion, and 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 this, and that these fallen angels, you know, that they saw that the 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 daughters of men, pretty much like women, human women, and that they began to to you know to have intercourse with them, and that somehow you know it produced this like superhuman, you know, giant. Now, when it says right there, sons of men, sons of God, this term sons of God appears in Job 1.6. Sorry, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, this, I didn't send these verses in. But this, this term sons of God appears in Job 1.6. When it says, then the sons of God came before the Lord. And it says that they, you know, they began to talk to the Lord. It appears again in Job 2.1. Then in Job 38.7. So it appears three times this, this term sons of God in the book of Job. And all three times it's talking about, about angels or fallen angels. Mm-hmm. Sons of God. Now, in Jude 6, if you guys want to go with me to, to the book of Jude, again, the book right before Revelation, Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, so, so Jude, Jude starts to talk about these angels. These angels who did not keep their proper domain. And it says that, it says that, that God has reserved, that, that God has kept them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, so, so Jude, Jude is talking about these, these angels, these demons. You know, these, these angels who did not keep their proper domain. So these angels that, that the Lord right now, as we speak, you know, are, are, are chained up. You know, so they're like, so we know that the Bible teaches that, that there's demons all around us. Right? I mean, this, it's a, it's just, we're living in a spiritual world, you know. And like it says in Ephesians chapter six, you know that, that, that we're not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, you know, against against rulers of wickedness, you know, in the heavenly places. So we know that, that all around us, even though we can't see them, you know, there's 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 this heavenly realm around us, you know, where angels and and, and demons dwell, you know. And and, and I bet if we if we be able to see them, we would be very surprised. I'm, I'm reminded right now of the Old Testament account where where Elisha was with a servant. And there's a whole army around him. And the servant of Elisha goes up to Elisha and tells him, Hey, you know, we're surrounded. We're, that's it. We're, we're doomed. And Elisha, he prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, open up the eyes of my servant so that he can see that there are more for us than there are against us. And then it says that, that the servant of Elisha, that, that, that all of a sudden he was able to see a whole army of heavenly hosts around him. And they see these angels just surrounding him. God's angels surrounding him. He realized like, dang, man, you know, God's got his angels all around us. So he wasn't scared. So, so we know that, that there are angels and demons, you know, who are dwelling here in the earth. You know, when Satan was cast out, he was cast out to the earth, you know, along with all his demons. 
And so Judah is saying that, 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 there's, that, even, that there's demons, there's, there's specific demons who are chained up right now. Now Revelation chapter 9, if you'll go me to Revelation chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke aroused out of the, out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. In verse 3, it says, Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power. Then it says, as the scorpions of the earth have power, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And these days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will, not, will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for the battle. So it goes on to, to describe these, these, these demons. And then it goes on to say in there, verse 11 of chapter 9, Revelation says, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, which is that guy right there in verse, in verse 3. And then it goes on to say, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. So the, here, here, here in, the, in the book of Revelation, as John is getting this, this vision, here right now we're, we're at the fifth trumpet, and, and at this fifth trumpet, what, they, what the Lord does is that he, he releases these demons who have been chained up in the bottomless pit for all eternity. So again, we know that, that, that demons are, are, are free to roam the earth, you know, and they're free to torment and to do pretty much whatever, you know, they, they want to do, you know, or whatever the Lord allows them to do. But there's these specific demons that for whatever reason, you know, God had to chain them up because they were pretty much talking about the worst demons in existence. These guys are the worst demons in existence. They're the wicked of the, they're the most wicked of all the wicked. The most wicked demons of all the wicked demons. They're so wicked that the Lord had to chain them up in this bottomless pit. And he released them there, there at the fifth trumpet. As, as a form of judgment upon the earth. So we see that these, that these wicked demons are released upon, upon the earth during the seven year tribulation period. To torment those who have rejected God. And to those who don't have the seal of God. Now back to Jude. Jude talks about these, these demons, these angels who left their proper their, their their domain. And it says, it says that, they, that they left their own abode and that God has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So it's possible that that that, the, that these angels that Jude is talking about are these angels there in Revelation chapter 9. Now the only other instance that, that, that we know, you know, the only the only instance that we know of, of these angels leaving their proper domain is is if here in Genesis chapter six that these sons of God is talking about angels, about fallen angels, about demons who came in and they left their proper domain, you know, and they begin to have intercourse with these women. You know, so that's like they, they cross the line. They cross the line. And if, if this is if this is what what Judah's talking about, then, then it's it's possible that, that that these angels that we read about here in, in Genesis chapter six are the angels that are that are chained up right now in the bottom of the pit, who are going to be released during the seven-year tribulation period to torment the people here on earth who have rejected God, who have, who don't have the seal of God on them. Now it's very very possible, but again, I'm not convinced either way, because then the question arises. If you guys remember, there in Numbers chapter thirteen. I think it's 1333. I remember because of Numbers 333. Numbers 1333. 
as, as, as they sent in the spies to go spy out the land of Canaan, the, the, the land that, that the Lord had given them. Remember, they sent out 12 spies, one spy from every, from every tribe. And they came back with a bad report and they said, the people who dwell on the land are like giants and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody besides, besides Joshua and Caleb gave a bad report. But Joshua and Caleb were like, no, let's go, we can take them on. But remember that, that, that they went in there and they saw that, that the people who, who dwell on the land are giants. Now, if, if these angels here in Genesis chapter 6 are, are these fallen angels, these demons, and the Lord took them out, then the flood came. Remember that after this, the, the flood is going to come and going to wipe out the horrors, except for Noah and his family. Then the question is, how do these, how do these giants appear in the land again? Did, did, they, did the demons come down and have intercourse with, with the women again? Did, did, you know, did they somehow survive the flood? Like, you know, so there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of speculation on it. So there's no, there's no like definitive explanation about this. So therefore, you know, again, I, I don't need to hear either side. I'll just have to say that, like I said, the numbers, that the, the secret things belong to the Lord. And we'll leave it at that. The secret things belong to the Lord. We don't have to try to explain everything. You know, I mean, we could, we could exegete, we could, we could explain, we could teach what the, what the, what's clearly taught in the Bible. But other than that, I mean, I just be giving you guys my opinion. So you guys decide, you know, where, or you guys do your own research. Maybe you guys will find something that, that, that I'm missing here. But again, it says, there in verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, in Genesis chapter 6, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, he's not talking about here about the length of days. I mean, uh, that a person is going to live to 120 years, even though we see that, you know, that people live up to like a good long life of like 100 years. I think I remember reading about a lady who was like 113 years old. But what the Lord is talking about here in verse, verse 3 is, is the coming judgment of the flood. So we see that from the moment that, that, that the Lord gave out this, this, this decree saying, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So from, from, the, from the moment that the Lord gave out this, this, this proclamation, 120 years later is when the worldwide flood came. So what the Lord is talking about here is giving, He's giving a prophecy. And He's prophesying about the worldwide flood, saying, hey, my, my spirit will not, will not strive with man forever. You know, but He's pretty much saying, all right, they have 120, 120 years until, until the flood, until, until everyone is destroyed. They have 120 years to repent. And this we see God's grace. That the, that the world had gotten so wicked, whether it was, you know, this, this demon uh, woman intercourse thing, or whether it was just, you know, the corruption of humankind as, as, a, as, as a whole. We don't know, you know, all the, all the things that were going around at the time, but they, it sounds like it was so wicked that God had to just wipe everyone out and start all over. But in this we see the grace of God that He gave Him 120 years, you know, heads up for them to repent. So he says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. And it says, There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it gives us an idea of, of, of how, how wicked the world was. It, it gives us insight into, into, into the condition of the world at this time. Mm-hmm. That the Lord would say that, that the intent of their heart was only evil continually. Saying, man, that's all they thought about was evil things. All they thought about was sin. All they thought about was, 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 was wickedness. 
I mean, we look at the world around us, and it's it's no it's it's no secret, you know, that that we live in a in a sinful world. It's no secret that that we live in a corrupt world, and it seems like like I'm reading this, and it's talking about you know 2021, that the that the intent of men's hearts are are evil continu- uh, continually. And it's like the next thing you the next thing you hear is like it's man it's evil. And it's like all of these new laws that are coming up with all these new things that are coming up with. It's like man it's just evil. You know, but, but to those who are perishing, you know, to those who don't have the Lord, to them, they call it, you know, progressivism. They, they, they think the world is progressing and being no more open-minded. But to us, we know that's evil. And verse 6 says, And the, Lord's, well, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. Now, this, this brings up a question. You know, can God repent? You know, can God do something and then, and then change his mind about it? It says right here that, that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. It, 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 it seems to, to indicate that, that, that God, God regretted making man on the earth. So, can God repent? Can God regret? Can God change his mind? Well, the Bible tells us that, that, that God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. And the Bible tells us that, that, that God is not a man that, that, he, that, he should, that he should lie, nor the son of man you know, that he should repent. Now, this term of God repenting is used again there, there with Moses. As, as, a, as a judge was going to come upon the children of Israel, then, then it says that Moses had a conversation with the Lord, and it says that, that the Lord repented, you know, that he was going to destroy Israel. Now, does that mean that, that God changed his mind, that Moses was able to convince God that Moses was able to, say, to, to, to plead enough with God and say, Lord, please, 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 please don't do it. God said, all right, I changed my mind. Well, that would contradict what the Bible says about God. And we see, what we see here is, a, is an anthropomorphism. As you guys remember, a few weeks back, I think Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we talked about this word anthropomorphism, which is giving human characteristics to God. And it's like, how other way can, can man explain you know, what, what God did but to say, hey, the Lord was sorry that he made man. The Lord, the Lord regretted that he made man. The Lord repented. That's man's finite way of describing the infinite. You know, that's, that's, like, that's our puny, puny brain, you know, trying, trying, to, trying to, to compensate God's actions. And we know that, that we're never going to know God fully. We're never going to understand God fully. Never. So maybe we're in, we're in heaven because the Bible says that we will know as we are known. But, but this right here, this saying that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and that he was grieved in his heart, you know, this is an anthropomorphism. Again, this is, this is the writer trying to, to, to compensate, you know, God's actions. Trying to explain it away. And really, how do you explain God? I mean, how do you explain why God does what he does? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. You know, he's God. So, you know, the, the best way that, that the man could describe what God did is to say that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. But we know that, that the, Lord, the Lord knew that, he was in, that this was going to happen. You know, so the Lord can't be sorry. The Lord can't be grieved if He knew it was going to happen. It's like if I'm walking through the door and I, and I know that, that somebody's standing next to the door right there and is, and is about to scare me, I can't walk through the door and be scared because I always start coming. You know, that's foreknowledge. Now, we, we, we tend to say that God has foreknowledge, but in reality, He has all knowledge. So God, if He knew that this was going to happen, then, then can He be grieved about it if He knew it was going to happen? 
No. Again, this is man's way of, of describing, you know, God's actions, describing what, what God did. And we know that, again, that the Lord knew that this was going to happen, but yet he still, he still decided to create man. Why? Again, to give us an opportunity to love him, you know, so that we could have the opportunity to have a relationship with God. God in his, in his, in his infinite knowledge knew that, that man was going to rebel against him, knew that man was going to reject him, knew that man was going to curse God, you know, spit in his face, you know, reject God, turn his back on God, crucify the Son of God, and yet he still created us. That's love. That's love. And it goes on to say there in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So say that the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, that he was grieved in his heart. And he said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And then it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I think that's amazing because that's, that still reigns true today. That no matter how wicked of a time we're living in, that, 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 the, that the open door of grace is still, is still there. It's still wide open. And that any, any person, no matter who they are, you know, those doors of grace are open. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been doing, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is, it's still possible to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. The New Testament says that where sin abounds, grace overabounds. And we see that, 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 that these eyes of grace of the Lord are still, are still able to be found today. You know, people could still find grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God's desire is that men and women would find grace in the eyes of the Lord in these times that we're living in. So what does He do? He saves us. He sends us out there as His ambassadors to proclaim this message. Hey, you find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Find grace. Find help in the time of need. So that's us right here. And that's an encouragement for all of us here that, that, again, just as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, hey man, that's our message. That's our message to the world today. We go out there and find, find grace in the eyes of the Lord. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, find grace. We see that God is a, is a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a God of justice. He's a, but He's also a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in the midst of this perverse generation, in the midst of this fallen world. I mean, so bad that, that, the, world, that the Lord had to just wipe everyone out. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Again, this is, this is the generation that we're living in, you know, the, the generation that's not going to see death. And, and, and for us too, you know, it's possible to, to find grace in the eyes of the Lord and we're going to be spared from the wrath to come. And that's an encouragement for us as believers, again, to just continue persevering. As, we, as we're going to read about Noah, you know, and, and, and Noah and the ark and, and God saving Noah and his family from the flood. Again, this is another picture of the, of the rapture of the church. But we'll get into it when, next week when we get into the rest of chapter 6. But for now, right now, I just want to leave you guys with this encouragement. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Us too. And we found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And now our message is to invite others to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we see again that even in the midst of a, per- of a perverse and wicked generation, a sinful generation, God always has His remnant. And that's us. You know, God, ha- God has His way of, of letting us know, hey, you're not alone. You're not the only one. Even though sometimes it may feel like, man, Lord, I feel like I'm the only one in the whole earth who is seeking you. Like the prophet Elijah He's there in 1 Kings chapter 19. He goes into like this depression mode. He goes into the cave. You know, the Lord has to, has to go and feed him. You know, and, and then he's asking him, hey, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? What are you doing here? And then finally Elijah says, Lord, they've killed all your prophets and I'm the only one left. And God says, I still have 700 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I think that's awesome that the Lord always preserves his remnant. He's so faithful to, to preserve his remnant. 
You know, those people who are going to continue seeking Him, those people who are going to be those beacons of light in the midst of darkness. For us today, that's us. For us here, that's us. Yeah, we'll be just a beacon of light in this community wherever God has placed us, whether it's here, with our unbelieving families, with our unbelieving coworkers, wherever it is that He's taken us. That's us, man. We're that remnant. And the, the message that we carry, hey, find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.